Hi, I'm Yen, and I'm not British. Hi, I'm Kit, and I'm not British either. And we're both big-time Batman fans who recently started watching the 1960s version of Batman. And we thought we might sit down, record one of our conversations about it, and share some of our wisdom and thrilling insights with the world. Cool. So, 1960s Batman, which you have been watching a lot of lately. Yes. Do we need to explain what 1960s Batman is? Or is that... Like, I don't, I hope not. Yeah. I hope it's uh, exactly what it sounds like in the 1960s Batman television show, uh, Adam West as Batman, uh, iconic, iconic, terrifying, uh, fairly long running, what, three seasons? Yeah, but very long seasons from back when TV was year round. So season one's like 60 episodes or some insane number. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ostensibly for children. Uh, actually ended up having a much wider appeal than that. I would say deliberately on purpose, though, as opposed to deliberately accidentally, because clearly there are things in it that are meant to appeal to adults, even if it's just, like, lingering shots of the attractive woman of the week. Yes, although I'd say, I mean, this is probably jumping the gun a bit, but I would say that uh, there's a difference between, I think probably the impression I get is that it's set up uh, as something that should be enjoyable for the parents watching this alongside the kids Mm. and that actually it my understanding is that it kind of emerged into something that was you know the the parents watching without the kids oh okay but uh yes so that's that's the thing Mm. and you've watched more recently than i have so i'm gonna let you start rambling first and hopefully it will it will come back to me okay well, I have uh, recently watched four episodes in, over the course of a day or something, two days, uh, and every episode, of course, is two parts. And so uh, each episode has a particular villain and they capture Batman and invariably Batman and Robin are in some life-threatening situation at the end of part one. And then you have to tune in, same bat time, same bat channel to see how they get out of it and collar the villain. So four episodes means two villains. So I've watched... Catwoman, the introduction of Catwoman. That's Julie Newmar um, as the first Catwoman. And then the episode after that, or the the two-part episode after that, is a Penguin episode. And I think it's the third or fourth. So he's been shown quite a bit. Both these episodes are interesting to me because it seems to me that they mark a turning point, and I hope it's a permanent one. I haven't seen beyond this yet. Uh, a turning point in the way that the villain schemes are written and worked out. So before you talk about that, why don't you talk about what your impression of the initial kind of villain scheme layout was? Sure. So from from what I've seen in the earlier episodes, the way that the villains work is really everything the villains do is designed purely to leave clues for Batman. Sometimes that's a deliberate effort on the villain's parts and they talk about, oh, I'm going to do this thing in order to leave this clue. And usually it's because they're trying to fake out Batman, but obviously he sees through it and catches them in the end. Sometimes it's not necessarily a deliberate effort on their part, but you can hear the writers talking about how they need to get to the next clue. Like it's so obvious that first they're going to rob the museum and take the priceless Egyptian artifact. Then they're going to rob the jewelry store. But then because they left something behind, 
Batman could predict the jewellery store heist. So is this like them not having deliberate motivations or, or like specific plans? A little bit. And it's, it is, it comes back to something that we'll probably talk about later on, which is that in some ways, everybody in this is the Riddler. Yep. There's a whole lot of doing things that deliberately tip Batman off to whatever they're going to do next. And it never seems to be in their interest to do this. They just like to, this is sort of them messing around with Batman. I'm going to leave him some clues and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the clues are ridiculously obvious about what they're going to do next. And it just allows them to almost get caught. And again, there's no benefit to that. It's just a way for them to have a cool fight scene. And allied to that is that the way Batman and Robin handle the clues is frequently random and illogical from my perspective there's a lot of almost just guesswork or pointless interpretation and spin put on a clue in order to get to what turns out to be the correct answer so so every clue's a riddle basically every clue's a riddle and it's solved in a profoundly bizarre manner so i can't remember exact examples right now but i believe there's an episode with the penguin i think diamonds get stolen and that in itself is enough of a clue. They're trying to work out who stole them. And the assumption is, oh, well, diamonds, another word for that is ice. That's the street name, Batman says. And who loves ice? Penguins do. And so he jumps to this conclusion. That's not a very good basis for coming up with that kind of conclusion. And also at another point, possibly in a different episode, he does something similar. And of course it turns out to be wrong. There's no logical basis for that leap. I still think the clue must be in the colors. They're so pretty. It's like a beautiful dawn. Beautiful dawn? Huh? Don Robbins, the beautiful movie star. She's on location here in Gotham City. Holy popcorn! Could he be planning to kidnap her? Don Robbins in a picture called The Mockingbird, produced by Ward Eagle, and she's staying in the penthouse at the Pelican Arms. Birds in every bush. A penguin ploy, if I've ever heard one. So that's interesting. So... So my reading of that is very much that this is how puzzles are solved from a childlike perspective, right? Mm. Um, this is what detection amounts to when, when like the whole sphere of of detective work is completely outside of has has like no place and nothing mm. to do with this show. There is never an ounce of kind of traditional detective work, yeah, and even the sort of cursory gestures towards. Uh, detective work are immediately outsourced to computers and i know we wanted to talk about technology separately so i Mm. won't talk too much about how technology is represented here but i think the main role that technology one of the main roles that technology has in the show is to like abstract away any of that detective stuff and so they'll input something like a a name or a map or some fingerprints something very high level they'll input something like that into uh, into a computer and out of that they'll end up with another one of these types of riddle clues mm. so they'll get a name that is obviously a pun or they'll get a string of locations that you know when you trace a line between them forms a number yeah um, or you'll get that kind of sort of uh, it's not really detective work it's like a, it's a it's a treasure treasure hunting of sorts yes so yeah I just want to jump in and, and say that because I think that's 
I think that's what defines kind of the majority of what Bruce and Robin do for each of these 20 minute episodes. Yes. Is is put put those together and chase after them. I agree with that. I think when they're not using computers, they are often relying on what could only be described as random intuition. And now that I think about it, I think the example that I meant to give, or a better example of what I was talking about, I think it was a Penguin episode. Uh, Penguin does something and leaves behind like a rainbow flag or a picture of a rainbow, something to do with rainbow colors. Mm-hmm. They don't know what this could mean. And they've, as always, when they get to the intuition phase, they have to say, oh, we've already run it through the mass spectrometer and the bat analyzing magic machine and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't, we got nothing back. What could it possibly be? And so it's a rainbow. Robin says, oh, well, maybe he's going to rob the rainbow room like the fancy theater or something, because there's lots of rich people there. Fine. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Batman says, that's a good thought, but it's wrong. Obviously, he's going to steal a diamond, because when you pass light through a diamond, it makes a rainbow? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, that's that's completely insane. Like, there's no possible basis for that leap of logic, but it turns out to be true. And then that's right. They back it up by saying, well, he would steal diamonds because ice is the street name for diamonds, and he's the penguin which, again, is not corroborating evidence. That's like you're trying to back up your terrible theory. So I, there are two things that jump out at me from that, and I'm aware we're getting off Yeah. Uh, what we were originally setting out to do, so we'll come back to that. But two things jump out. Firstly, that this kind of intuition, puzzle-based, childlike solving is allowed to be wrong when it's Robin. I'd be very surprised if we see an episode where it's wrong and it's Batman. Not mm. only because Batman can't be wrong, but because... There's no measure of correctness here. No. Like, if there's a connection that can be made, then that connection is valid. And if it serves the plot, then it'll be pursued. And there's no way for them to differentiate good detective work in this universe from bad detective work, except through the lens of, well, Robin's Robin's junior, Robin's learning. Robin is a character who's allowed to be wrong. Mm. And I suggest that that same intuitive leap from Batman would instantly be correct. I suppose, in a way, talking about the instructional side or Robin being in training and he's young, Yeah. I guess a lot of Batman's intuitive leaps are really just lessons dressed up as crime solving. So he teaches you that when you pass light through a diamond, it makes a rainbow. Yeah. And probably people didn't know that. Kids would have been interested to hear that. Yeah. And so they just use that as a way to shoehorn educational information into the show while making it seem like an exciting part of puzzle solving when, again, it clearly wasn't. It was clearly an insane deductive leap. That's fair. And actually, now that you mention that, um, so I've been watching a lot of elementary at the moment, um, and it occurs to me that that's something uh, Johnny Lee Miller's Sherlock does with relative frequency as well. And that's quite interesting because that's a much more serious obviously much more serious detective show and yet i like i genuinely think that to a certain extent writers around that table sit down and collect interesting facts and find ways to link them to deductions so without going on a sidebar about elementary but you do genuinely have episodes of a serious detective show wherein the first link between the first kind of clue insight into a crime scene is uh, an incredibly obscure fact about, you know, uh, the pollination of this flower in this season, in this region, and Mm. and other similar kind of, and sometimes potentially like historical kind of uh, 
sidebars about, well, obviously, you know, this kind of lint wasn't found in this region until X, Y, Z, and then they changed it to this. And the fact that it doesn't have this particular quality means that it must date from 20 years ago, et cetera. And those are obviously just, as you say, placeholders for factual information. Mm. Um, Obviously, in the case of elementary and other types of detective shows, it's going to be much more about sort of, uh, you know, quite interesting style, random, weird facts that they found and they they want to use. And they're going to do a better job of trying to tie it into actual crime solving. Definitely, definitely, because there's still there's still an element of genuine detection. But I just mm. find it interesting that this placeholder, a placeholder for factual information, is still kind of present in both. Yeah, that's fair. In both genres. Now I know I just uh, I just talked for ages already, but I think we should get back to villains, which was originally what we were talking about and how villain uh, plots play out in the first half of the season. Yeah, so now we've kind of explained the way that villain plots were working. And it's interesting to me that you said earlier Mm. the way that they solve the puzzles or find more clues is it's more like a treasure hunt than detective work. Because the Catwoman episode, which is where I would mark uh, this change in the way that villains' plans seem to operate, is actually a treasure hunt. The whole plot is a treasure hunt although you don't know that to begin with Mm. it's very simple catwoman hardly even steals anything she almost doesn't break the law what she does is uh without wanting to get too spoilery she steals a cat statue and that's enough to cause people to think oh maybe it's catwoman we better call batman then at the same time as stealing a cat statue she sends a picture of the man who owns the statue she stole plus a companion statue she sends a picture of this to the police with a big cross over the one that she stole. So it's a pretty obvious mm-hmm. pointing the finger towards, hey, I'm going to steal the other one. And so Batman gets called in, so they obviously have to start protecting this man, etc. And she ends up with both cats. But she's not intending to rob the guy. She just wanted both cats. She then sends her henchmen to the library, and they come back with some fascinating books. Basically, these cats are the the keys to deciphering this pirate treasure map Hmm. that says where all of this money is buried outside Gotham City. And so if she hadn't stolen the cats, like if she'd just gone and taken photos of them or whatever and used them, nothing that she did would have been illegal. And this is pirate treasure that she could easily just claim for herself. They make a big point of saying that the pirate apparently pledged it to the needy children of Gotham. I see. So that it would be bad for anyone else to take it. But again... Who cares? Like, Finders Keepers operates in that situation. So, all that to say, she doesn't. She hardly leaves any clues for Batman. In fact, the only clue she really leaves him is a feint mm-hmm. to make him think that she's going to rob this rich guy when, in fact, all she wants is the two cats. The only reason Batman figures out what the hell's going on is because he luckily ends up reacquiring the two cats and they analyse them in their magic computers and realise that the two supposedly identical statues are less than identical. Uh, and then again, a trip to the library and a whole lot of other stuff. But it means that the actual plot makes a lot more sense. Like that was very easy for me to explain Catwoman's motivation, her, the steps that she took to complete her goal, and the way that Batman was able to work out what her goal was. There weren't any ridiculous leaps of logic there. Mm-hmm. Everybody did things that made sense within the context. So yeah, I found that very satisfying, and it is. As you say, it's interesting that that was this is the first direct treasure hunt episode they've ever done, and it did seem to fit better with 
Batman's style of crime solving. So is that the shift you're describing uh, in terms of how the villains play out later on in the season? Basically, yes. Penguin is obviously not also on a treasure hunt Mm -hmm. in his thing, but again, his plan is fairly clearly stated the first time that you get a scene with him talking to his offsiders uh, in this episode, and you understand exactly what it is, and because of what the plan is, it necessitates him not committing crimes. Okay. Um, So again, he doesn't really have the opportunity to leave clues, and he has no motivation to do so, and in fact is very careful about the information that is publicly available to Batman, uh, as opposed to previous ones where he was just leaving pictures of rainbows and umbrellas and crap all over the place. So it's actually moving away from, at, at a meta level, it's moving away from the treasure hunt format. Yeah, it is. Into much more deliberate plotting. Yes. Yeah, what seems like a much more deliberate motivation. The interesting thing about the Penguin plot, again, without wanting to say too much, is it sort of circles back to the very first episode, which is the one where Riddler appears to have reformed and is going to sue Batman for slander for repeatedly interrupting his business dealings and stuff. Because again, this is called Penguin Goes Straight. And so it's about Penguin playing a long con, making people think he's gone straight to the point that even Robin starts to doubt that he is still still a criminal. Um, and so he does a great job of that, but obviously it means he can't really commit a lot of crimes because he can't. He doesn't want to be tied to things. And again, he's being a law-abiding citizen, he sort of has to use the law as his recourse for Batman harassing him. So is it is it fair to say, extrapolating out from the villain plot themselves, that that has, that has a, a, a run-on effect? in terms of the villain characterization, because that's one of the things that 1960s Batman is most remembered for. The villains. For the villains. I mean, in in general, the whole Batman universe is most remembered for the villains. It's sort of widely acknowledged that Batman's Rose Gallery is the best Rose Gallery um, of superheroes. um, Bar none. Bar none. Uh, And that's something that I think is also true very much and quite central in 1960s Batman. So it's been credited with sort of salvaging uh, the Riddler, um, which I'm not going to talk about at length, yes, uh, even though I love the Riddler more than life itself. Um, but yeah, it has been it has been credited with, uh, you know, plucking the Riddler out of a potential obscurity as a as a sort of B-list, even even C-list Batman villain and elevating him up from the status of, and this is why it's quite interesting, elevating him up from the status of a pure gimmick villain. Mm. Um, who who is just sort of rolled out and rolled away and never never it's never associated with significant threat or sort of genuine drama. Um, so have you seen a shift in the way the villains are presented? Well, certainly, it makes it easier to relate to the villains if you can more easily understand what they're trying to do. Yeah. So in Penguin's case, I'd already seen him several times before. But his plan here made a lot of sense and it seemed to fit with his character. Catwoman comes across as very calculated because this is the first time you see her. She's got this amazing scheme. She knows about the secret treasure. She's worked out what's the minimum effort I have to go to Mm. to find the treasure without alerting anyone else because that's always the risk with a treasure hunt. You want to do it alone. And she totally does because she backstabs her own henchmen, which is also great. Um, 
I think it definitely improves the characterization of the villains. It makes them seem less random and less insane. And that's, I mean, to a certain extent, it's, it's interesting that the villains come back so frequently because that's something that's from the very beginning, isn't it? Mm. There's definitely a small selection of, of reoccurring villains with occasional one-offs. But for a show aimed at children without much interest in continuity, as soon as you have reoccurring villains with consistent motivations, I imagine some continuity is inevitably going to accrue. Mm. Although perhaps I certainly haven't watched far enough in to enjoy that, and I, I suspect you're probably the same. Yeah, I mean, I'm, what, 22 episodes in or something. I will say in terms of continuity with the villains, they do tend to make a point of explaining how they could have escaped okay if they were in prison last time or saying oh well he was just released six months ago for good behavior right and oh but he's back to his old tricks now kind of thing okay so so lip service to that at the very least yeah early on Mm. okay so uh not to not to like rush us along but i noticed we've been talking for uh over 20 minutes and yeah. Like I'm looking at this little bullet point Got list we have of things we wanted to talk about, and we've covered two of like twelve. So anything else you want to say about villains? Let's do that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So let's see. For me, um, I, it's interesting that where you identified the turning point, um, because I think the first, despite my uh, unending adoration of the Riddler, I would say who, uh, as Kit mentioned, opens the season. He's in the first episode. Um, I would say the first villain I really noticed and that made me pause in 1960s Batman would be uh, Mr. Freeze, actually. And I don't know how well you remember this episode, but uh, without going into too much detail, it's definitely one that has the most characterization Mm. in a villain. I mean, Mr. Freeze uh, historically gets a lot of quite sympathetic characterization due to his backstory. Um, And what's curious to me is that 1960s Batman, despite, you know, the additional hokiness they do still preserve kind of a more tragic slash sympathetic backstory for Freeze. Mm. And I think those are some of the few scenes of genuine negotiation between the villain and Batman and Robin. Yes. And that's quite interesting to me. So there's definitely, you know, there's, there's, there's much less evil cackling and there is much more, again, as you said, much more of a reasoned plot, much more of uh, uh, specific motivations, much more of... I'd rather not kill you, Mm. but unfortunately, I'm in a position where I have to. Come, come, you two. You've scarcely said two words to each other the whole meal. What's the matter? You don't like the roast beef? Ah, I know. It's the spinach. Let the boy go. He's never done you harm. His only crime was disobeying my order not to follow me by planning that homing device on me. You have my deepest sympathy, Batman. Unfortunately, the boy now knows this hideout, so what can I do? Well, and don't they keep the backstory that he in some way blames Batman for his wife's situation? They do. Which is impressive in itself to imply that Batman might do something that contributes to negative things in the world in an otherwise sunny show with very black and white villains. Well, yeah, so that's, that's, I think that Mr. Freeze episode is the first episode that I remember where there is a suggestion that a villain might not be purely evil and that batman himself might not be purely good Mm. and not only batman not himself purely good in the sense of uh with reference to his past actions but also potentially with reference to future actions or decisions he makes now for instance uh in in the kind of negotiation with mr freeze would he be willing to let him go 
Mm. Would he be willing to overlook some stuff? Uh, are there options for rehabilitation? Not only at the end of the episode when the villain has admitted all wrongdoing and seen the light and probably also fallen in love with Batman if the <laughs> villain is female, but in the middle of the episode when they are still sort of in the midst of their evil plot, when they're still contemplating achieving their aims without having seen the light, is there still hope for rehabilitation at this point? Mm. And that was quite interesting to me. That's a lot I've just said, so I'll throw the question back to you. Is there anything else uh, based on that or on villains in general that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I do want to talk about uh, the fact that all the female villains or the female villain helpers um, have to fall in love with Batman and realise that a life of crime is wrong and then get reformed. Yes. Uh, There's one, I think, in the initial Riddler two-part episode who does not get reformed yes yeah that is quite memorable i think it's jill st john and she dies but it's an accidental death and batman feels terrible about it after that it doesn't happen again until and this is the great part about the catwoman episode she obviously has to live to fight another day so she can't get reformed and she also isn't in love with batman at least not yet and her exit on that episode is much more dramatic and it's much more kind of defiant although the show is portraying it as she succumbed to her greed and fell to her death. Yeah. She obviously hasn't died. She's going to come back. And she makes a pretty, she has enough time to make the choice not to accept Batman's help, but to try to hold on to her sack of gold doubloons, which is dragging <laughs> her down this pit. It's amazing. Nice. So I think that's that to me expresses why she is considered one of the kind of big four villains on the show yeah. because she gets to be the only female villain who doesn't end up in Batman's arms and it sort of never cowtows to him. I know that Batman and Robin will swallow the bait and when they do, I'll be rid of that dynamic duo once and for all. Others have tried but failed. The Catwoman is not like the others. I'll show you how to clip Batman and Robin's wings. I will prevail. Cool. Okay. So I think we've definitely, definitely covered off uh, yeah. villains and how, yeah, how interesting they are in this kind of child, child-friendly, uh, comedic, uh, almost sketch show, sketch treasure hunt context. Um, what else jumps to mind that we really want to talk about? I mean, we've talked about villains, so maybe it makes sense now to talk a bit about uh, uh, heroes. Mm. Um, so obviously. Uh, Bruce, Bruce, Batman, and Robin, and Dick. Um, well, I, I know you have a lot to say about Robin. Yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe open up with Bruce if you like. <laughs> Bruce in this is great because he's Adam West. Um, Correct. This Bruce is so wholesome because this show is wholesome and it turns around him. That's interesting. When we see him in in sort of playboy role, what would otherwise be called playboy Bruce Wayne role, yes, which is definitely not playboy Bruce Wayne in this in this context. No, and I mean there are some episodes where he's out with women, and there isn't even really any implied romantic component to it either. He's mm. just sort of escorting them because he's a gentleman. Yes, correct. Which is lovely. And the only other Bruce that I can think of who's like that is the Bruce in uh, Batman. The animated series yes. Batman has. Yeah. He's also this nice, friendly, responsible billionaire. He's not a playboy. If anything, he sort of seems boring. Yeah, I'd say I'd say uh, Taz Taz Batman Taz Bruce, I should say, has moments of uh, of irony and uh, like the character has moments of irony and 
and humor about himself and sarcasm about himself that maybe that maybe Adam West Batman is lacking. Yeah, this I think that's beyond this show. I, agree. I don't think anyone in this show has self-aware irony. No, not not the characters themselves. No, 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 not the characters themselves. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the characterization of Bruce makes sense. Some of my favorite scenes are the dialogue between Bruce and Dick where Dick is complaining about something he has to do, like learning about botany. And Bruce always manages to turn this subject into the only hope for peace for mankind. Yeah, yeah. And the subjects get more and more obscure. You know, it starts out with, it's good to learn other people's languages and ends up with, if you don't know about the world around you and the trees, how could you ever hope for world peace? Uh, Which doesn't even make any... It's a good point. It makes about as much sense as the crime-solving stuff. But it's just so fun to watch watch those contortions yes, and the yeah. the kind of insipid wholesomeness of their conversations. Indeed. Oh, heck. What's the use of learning French anyway? Dick, I'm surprised at you. Language is the key to world peace. If we all spoke each other's tongues, perhaps the scourge of war would be ended forever. So, Robin, what do you think about Robin slash Dick Grayson? Well, yes, we are we are somewhat in Robin territory at the moment. Um, I love this version of Robin without without any irony or any any distance. I adore this this version of Robin. Uh, there's a obviously there's a wholesomeness and a sincerity to it that I think it should be part of Robin. Um, I think, or at least it's certainly part of. I should say, you're right, I should be saying Dick Grayson. I think it should be part of a lot of versions of Dick Grayson, even versions of Dick Grayson that are uh, more kind of obviously more modern that have uh, more sarcasm, mm. sarcastic forms of humour. Um, even Like Batman Taz Robin. Like Batman Taz Robin. Batman Taz Robin is actually a really good marriage of the hyper-sincere Robin and the sarcastic quipping Robin. Mm. Again, I should be saying Dick Grayson. Um, that we see, uh, you know, scattered around other versions. I think, in general, uh, departing a little bit from 1960s Batman, it, you know, it is a crime that Robin has been uh, disparaged and sidelined as a character um, and accused of, uh, like, diminishing the serious tone of Batman, hopefully with the rebirth. Is that partly because of 60s Batman? Well, that's what I'm thinking. So hopefully with the rebirth, now that we've kind of moved on from Christopher Nolan's Batman series which uh, I won't comment on. <laughs> that would take too long. Um, but now that we've moved past that kind of uh, Very more serious, Batman. shall we say, potentially even grim dark version of Batman that has a lot to enjoy in it at the same time, and now that we're on to superhero movies like uh, Thor Ragnarok, I think we are much in a much better place to have a Batman story with Robin front and center where he belongs Mm -hmm. being the sincere, well-meaning naive Mm. um, character that he is while also being someone who's, you know, deeply funny. And that's (laughs) always part of Robin. And that's actually something they've, uh, they, that is absent from 1960s Batman Robin in that he's never self-aware no, in his humor. No he is, is deeply funny, but uh, deeply unintentionally. Well, he had the best line recently mm. uh, when Catwoman's cat attacked him and he exclaimed, holy cats, a cat. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> 
Holy cats! A cat! So, so, so what I will say about uh, this version of Robin, and maybe one of the things they get by stripping back his uh, humour, is that this version of Robin is entirely about his relationship with Bruce, Mm. obviously. And, I mean, we scarcely see a scene with only Robin, to my knowledge. Except when he's at school. Except potentially at school. Um, And even then, I think relatively rarely... Mm. Yeah, so this version of Robin is is the ward Dick Grayson through and through. And there's a sweetness to their relationship as a byproduct, I think, of Robin's complete and utter innocence and sincerity uh, in this version. That He is completely sincere. <laughs> he is utterly sincere at all times. Uh, that takes these, these moments of nonsense, as you say, of... Uh, you know, let's do your French homework together and you shouldn't even complain about your French homework. You must be enthusiastic about doing your French homework <laughs> because it will bring nations together. Moments, these public service announcements yeah. to the children watching um, that kind of elevates them, I think. And certainly in my watching, I will shut up about Robin very soon, I promise. <laughs> certainly in my watching of this show and in my attention to the chronology of it, I think that does add tremendous value to the relationship you see develop between Bruce and Robin, uh, sorry, Bruce and Dick and Batman and Robin. Um, and there are there are moments of genuinely upsetting, uh, or I shouldn't say upsetting, genuinely moving uh, moments in their relationship, uh, generally bite-sized mm. in the middle of all the rest of the nonsense. But I think they achieve... Uh, they achieve some genuinely interesting relationship work, even within this frame of, uh, you know, ridiculously wholesome Bruce and ridiculously straight-laced Robin. They still manage to achieve some really sweet, interesting moments, and I think that is largely to the actor's credit. Mm. Um, so I don't know how you feel about that. I'd agree with that. I, yeah, I think you have to... You do have to work a bit hard to see beyond the kind of cardboard cutout. I I agree with that. I think you have to be willing to look for it. Yes. For sure. It's not a priority for the writers. But I also think it's there. And if you and if you approach if you approach the show with the same kind of sincerity and willingness to take it at face value while simultaneously taking it mm. with all its nonsense. You know, if you're willing to take it as it is and approach it as a sincere thing, I actually think you get a lot, you get a surprising amount of value out of that particular interpretation, which actually brings us to one of our other bullet points, which was talking about the lasting influence of 1960s Batman and sort of why Mm. it is so important in the Batman sort of mythos, but also why it was so important at the time, like why it was so tremendously successful Yes. I mean, I think part of that can be traced to uh, technological reasons. I was reading recently about The Addams Family versus The Munsters, the two TV show versions of that from the 60s. Mm-hmm. They were on competing networks, but they're basically the same idea about families made up of stock horror villains. However, both shows ultimately, and they were aimed at a similar demographic to Batman because they're quite child-friendly. Mm-hmm. Both of them ultimately fell to Batman, which was on one of the networks that I think had the Addams Family, 
because both those shows were in black and white and Batman was in color from the start. Interesting. And Batman is a riot of color. Yes, yes. If you want to see a show that demonstrates the value of having a color TV, it's Batman. And as with so many early color shows, they just make everything as colorful as possible. So that, I think that certainly helped in terms of why it became so popular because it was, here's a show the whole family can watch and it's this beautiful bright color on our new color TV that we paid lots of money for. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Obviously, it goes beyond that. I mean, so much of this show has ended up in the lexicon. So to the point that even the 90s Batman films, which were deliberately trying to get away from the the shadow of the 60s -hmm. TV series, when they introduced Robin, they felt the need to have a callback to his wholly blank line templates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's one. Obviously, same bat time, same bat channel. So many people know that, even if they're not really that aware of 60s Batman, Mm. and you don't need to have watched it to know that expression. Tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. Can you see any way out? Recently, I saw that 60s Batman is on TV on Friday nights on a free-to-air television network in Australia. Uh, and it's a youth network. Interesting. So it's it's actually Viceland. It's on Viceland? Yeah, Viceland in Australia. Tremendous. They're doing wow. back-to-back Batmans on Friday night. Which suggests that it's, if anything, becoming popular again. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, I mean, there's a, there's a larger retro trend that I think that can fall into. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, it's certainly maybe that speaks to what you were saying about uh, hoping that future depictions of Batman can be a little bit uh, more lighthearted. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely the direction it's going now. And actually, just to quickly, just to sort of finish off a point, I was halfway through making uh, sort of unintentionally earlier talking about Robin to me, some of the appeal of 1960s Batman watching it today is uh, getting back to what I've written down as uh, irony, pre ironic distance. Um, I'm not sure if that makes as much sense Mm. to anyone else. It does to me. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? There's an aspect in which 1960s Batman is entirely sincere with its audience while simultaneously having a lot of fun with its own sincerity. But there is a willingness to uh, suspend disbelief, to suspend consequence, and to bask in optimism and colour and movement and gimmicks and fun without needing to undercut any of these things or justify any of these things Mm. or step away from these things and disparage them simultaneously. That is... Maybe maybe making a comeback now, but still, I would say, still relatively sparse. Radical sincerity. Yeah, there is an element of radical sincerity mm. and, and fun, fun sincerity, like a notion that you can be, that the fiction doesn't always have to kowtow to reality, mm. not only in terms of realism, inbuilt realism, but also in terms of the tone and consequence. So I certainly get tremendous mileage out of that while watching 1960s Batman out of that kind of pure joyful sincerity that so many things today, I think, in media would still feel a need to undercut. And do you think that that, uh, that radical sincerity, which is in itself funny because it's so ridiculously over-the-top sincere, mm. do you think that feeds back into what we were saying about it being a show that was designed to be uh, enjoyable for adults as well? 
that it's meant to be something children take seriously and adults chuckle at? Or are adults also supposed to take all the wholesomeness seriously as well? So the thing is, I don't actually believe, now this is pure conjecture, but I don't believe 1960s audiences would have taken, adult audiences would have taken the the wholesomeness and the sincerity at face value, or, I, or at least I don't believe they would have, I don't think they would have, and I don't think they would have enjoyed that very much. Mm. Um, and in general, I think that the the impact and the influence of the show at the time is probably much more linked to the way the way audiences, a lot of audiences would still watch it today in terms of through a lens of irony. Mm. Um, so I actually do think that a lot of the enjoyment in the 1960s was probably was probably based on that double reading. Mm. Well, you'd be glad to know that Adam West agrees with you. Interesting. Uh, he's on record as having said what appealed to him reading the script of the first episode was Batman walking into this underground club in his full costume and being asked where he'd like to sit and saying, oh, I wouldn't want to sit at the bar because I don't want to draw too much attention, <laughs> which is obviously such a ridiculous thing for him to say. He's yeah, drawing yeah. all the eyes in the room. And when you watch that, West delivers that line completely straight-faced yeah. as he delivers all of his lines, in fact. Yeah. And that any any semblance of that being a joke is up to the viewer. There's no studio audience laugh track. There's no wink. There's nothing to suggest that, that anyone on this show isn't aware of how ridiculous that is. Ringside table, Batman. Uh, just looking, thanks. I'll stand at the bar. I shouldn't wish to attract attention. Okay, so apologies, I'm going to move us on again. Yeah. So we've got, we've also, we'll have a look at the list and see if there's anything else there that takes your fancy. I think we've covered quite a bit. Yeah, we've covered most of the key points. I think... Mm. In terms of lasting influence, again, I think the bombastic narration has definitely had a much broader influence, and there's there are probably PhDs to be written about that, because the narrator is so present. He's there at the start of the second half of or the second part of each episode, recapping for a full minute, basically telling you exactly what happened in the previous episode. Yeah. He's there telling you to tune in, same bat time, same bat channel. He's sometimes shouting things like, get out, Batman and Robin, get out, and stuff like that, like he's watching the show with you. Fourth wall? What fourth wall? Yeah, exactly. He he is almost a character on the show and he's so ridiculous and so over the top again, just like the over the top sincerity of the characters. He makes me think of the narrator in sheep in the big city. Okay. And I'm pretty sure there's a deliberate, pretty sure that narrator is a deliberate callback. Interesting. Um, that's an animated show again, ostensibly aimed at children, but with a lot of kind of complex wordplay and good fun for adults in that one. The narrator is an animated character who participates in some of the action sometimes. People turn up to his narration booth while he's describing what's going on and <laughs> harass him while he's trying to narrate the episode. That's excellent. Uh, and you get to see him, so he has a physical presence and everything, which is sort of taking the Batman narrator just that one step further and saying, mm. well, we all know what he sounds like. Let's see what he looks like and how would he react if he were in the situation that he's kind of gazing upon and narrating. I love that trope. It's so much fun to me. That's one of the most fun ways to break the fourth wall, I think. In mm -hmm. an age where shows are constantly doing it, but as kind of a cheap way to get out of a bad joke, to do it as a quick way to point out, oh, this, this part of the plot makes no sense, or that joke was stupid. That's such an easy fourth wall break, and it's lazy. Whereas a narrator, that kind of bombastic narration takes a lot more effort, and it's more of a commitment for a fourth wall break. 
but it's a lot more fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a really interesting perspective. I haven't thought a lot about the narrator, but he's definitely uh, present and having a really good time mm. uh, throughout these episodes. And fun fact, that narrator apparently, so the voice of the narrator, this is not apparent, this is true, uh, is the producer of the show. But apparently his presence on the show and his whole style, his bombastic style, mm -hmm. uh, was based on a journalist, a well-known New York journalist who did a radio show talking about uh, organized crime from 30 years ago and it was largely fictionalized. And so he would give these dramatic readings. Oh, we're in sunny Chicago and everything seems fine and dandy in the neighborhood and suddenly Al Capone steps out and blah, blah, blah. And just these over-the-top dramatic readings. And that's apparently where some of those stock phrases the narrator uses, like stately Wayne Manor and Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. I see. Because Walter Winchell is the name of the journalist, he had these stock phrases he would use in this ridiculous radio drama that he was narrating. Stately home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. In closing, should you watch 1960s Batman? Uh, yes, I think you should. I think uh, there. Are, I think there's a lot to recommend it. Whether you are interested in the influence that it's had over TV since, and there's a lot to talk about there for sure. As I said, I think there are PhDs to be written about this. If you've if you've fallen into the current superhero trend, this is definitely not something that you will have seen before. It's different from any of the superhero franchises that are out there at the moment for all the reasons that we've enumerated. And it is it's it stands as proof that Batman doesn't have to be super gritty. This is a perfectly valid portrayal of Batman. Yeah. But it's not dark at all. In fact, they don't ever do anything at night in this show. I assume for budgetary reasons. Um so yes, I think I think it appeals to many people on many levels. And I don't even think you have to be into superheroes to enjoy it because it's so silly. Yeah. What about you? Do you think people should watch 1960s Batman? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I'm not sure I'd recommend it as a first entry point to Batman. Um, I think it's quite strong and quite particular and perhaps less sort of uh, extreme depictions might be better to start with. But I think it's an excellent addition and you know groundbreaking addition to the Batman mythos. I think uh, I think... As I've mentioned, I think it also there's also a lot of mileage to get out of it as a non-comedic mm. show. Um, I think there's a bit of work you have to do as a viewer to get that mileage, but I think it's absolutely worth it. And uh, the other thing I want to say is that I think I think it's slow burn um, in the sense that I think you have to be willing to put the time in and you have to be willing to hang in there to get that kind of extra mileage I was talking about. It can be incredibly enjoyable at, at a bite-sized 20-minute over breakfast. It's very much a Saturday morning watch, I think. Yeah, it can It can be this kind of uh, very easy, mm. easy watching, enjoyable, fun thing, or you can kind of strap yourself in for the long haul the way I have done and sort of invest <laughs> at the same level as these characters are investing in their own universe. And to me you'll get a lot more out of it if you do that but there's still uh there's still plenty to enjoy if you don't do that too if you don't have the time but either way the answer is definitely yes worth watching well that's it thanks for listening i hope you had as much fun listening to this masterpiece of audio engineering as we did making it 
We've always got a lot more opinions, so there's a good chance you'll be hearing these dulcet tones again soon. <laughs>